This is the chant that is traditionally said before talks during retreat. And we started expanding it to all the time. And partly because um, I think it's nice to be reminded that we too are Buddhas and ancestors. Can you hear me? And also, um, Danielle and I had a brief talk about this, and also the the recognition or inviting into the room of our, because in this chant we're talking about, mostly we're talking about, um, at least in a strict sense, our ancestors that are the Japanese, Chinese, and Indian ancestors of, in the Buddhist lineage. But this is not all of the awakened people throughout time and space that have supported us in this moment. It's not restricted to just that lineage. So for all of the ancestors that have nourished us in this way, that have brought us to this place, and and I understand that many of us have complicated histories with some of our ancestors, So we don't have to bring that pain in. But for the ones who um, have nourished us, we can invite them with that chant into the room, if we wish to do so. That's what I do. I do it because when I do that, I feel, it's strange, I was actually, when I was sitting Zaza and this came up for me, when I do that, when I feel that, there's something that I feel, I feel more real. It's an odd thing to say, but, but I feel less um, disconnected, less um, easily taken over by this rational material world that we're supposed to believe is the end of everything. So, um, whatever that means for you, welcome, and welcome to you. This week has been, um, you know, I was thinking it's hard to rank the foolishness of human beings. Have a lot of, you know, the top ten. They'd be teeming for the top ten. But to actually choose to destroy our home has got to be up there. And so it it's struck me not only because of what's happened this week, but um, certain announcements that are frustrating. Uh, to say the least. Also, there's a, there's a conference that I'm giving a talk, out, a talk on Monday about ecology and, and Buddhism. So this has been on my mind. And I wanted to go back to a, we'll chant this today too, I wanted to go back to some lines 
Ehdogan. Ehdogan is, uh, is one of our ancestors, one of the teachers in our lineage from 13th century Japanese teacher that is said to have brought Soto Zen, or our lineage of Zen, to Japan from China. And um, he is a very evocative writer. Not always easy, easy to penetrate, but um, something usually comes through. But he has lines in a, um, in a chant called The Self-Receiving and Employing Samadhi which is actually a section of a longer writing called the Bendoa. And um, he says, because earth, grass, trees, walls, tiles, and pebbles all engage in Buddha activity, those who receive the benefit of wind and water caused by them are inconceivably helped by the Buddha's guidance splendid and unthinkable, and awaken intimately to themselves. I'll read that again. Because earth, grass, trees, walls, tiles, and pebbles all engage in Buddha activity, those who receive the benefit of wind and water caused by them are inconceivably helped by the Buddha's guidance, splendid and unthinkable, and awaken intimately to themselves. I'm trying to think how much of this I should read before I start talking about it. I'll stop there. So this Buddha's activity, we're not necessarily talking about, at this, uh, when Dogen talks about Buddha, he's not talking about the historical Buddha. He's talking about what became known as Buddha nature, or that everybody has in them, everything has in it, the capacity toward liberation or to awaken. And this, you know, it sounds magical, but the way that I would, the way that I would bring this down to the, um, the kind of very pragmatic is, the Buddha talked about seeing the roots of our suffering. And those of some of you may have experienced, when you see the root of a particular way of behaving, if you see it clearly, it suddenly begins to dissipate just by seeing it. Now, why is that the case? There's no reason for that to be the case. There's nothing, I mean, I'm a, could she, I could see something, it might not. But if I see it thoroughly, it does. And so there's something about cause and effect that is um, more than just, well, if I do something 50 times, and this also works, but I talked about this, replacing wholesome activity with unwholesome, I mean, replacing unwholesome with wholesome. <laughs> we usually do the other. Um, Replacing unwholesome with wholesome. And certainly, it's kind of a seesaw effect. You know, eventually it kind of tips. And um, that, that certainly is true. But there's something else that happens, too, which is every once in a while, we just see the roots of something, and we're not interested anymore, once we see it clearly. This doesn't have, you know, you can come at this many ways, and still you have to ask the question, what is behind that? What is behind? And one response to it is this notion of Tathagatagarbha, which is the, the, the womb of Buddhas, or what became Buddha nature, which is that in, in life itself, in cause and effect itself, is some natural movement toward clarity, 
toward ease, toward enlightenment, toward awakening, toward liberation, if we put in the effort. So this becomes, this notion of Buddha nature for Mahayana Buddhists at this time in China became in some ways synonymous with the matrix of life itself. Life itself is Buddha. You know, life itself is this is something that once is too much. Something that if enough effort is put in, awakening will happen. Liberation will happen. That will be what will happen for us. And um, which is where our faith comes from in Zen practice. If that weren't the case, even outside of Zen, where there isn't Buddha nature maybe as a concept, if it weren't the case that we didn't believe that our seeing brought about liberation, we wouldn't do this. It wouldn't make any sense. That has to work, or this doesn't work. So, for Dogen, he talks about, and it's not that he's not talking about, when he's talking about the Buddha's guidance, he's certainly talking about the teachings of the Buddha. But um, when he goes to this level of the splendid and unthinkable and awaken intimately to themselves, this is Buddha nature. Those, he goes on to say, those who receive the, these water and fire benefits spread the Buddha's guidance based on original awakening. Those who receive these fire, water and fire benefits, this benefit, he'll go on to say what those benefits are. Um, benefits spread the Buddha's guidance. And we're back. The story we're telling about our, um, our life is this very tiny little thread of what our life actually is. If practice and realization were two things, as it appears, um, you know what, I'm going to skip that part. Um, that just gets, let's see, let's get back down to where I'm. He goes on to just talk about how sitting zazen, where we don't disturb what's arising in the mind, where we sit and we just allow what's arising to arise and we don't muck around with it, we don't manipulate it, we don't tell stories about it, we don't try to be a better person, we just let ourselves be what we are. That in the process of doing that, what, be, what becomes illuminated is that there is something, is exactly that which we don't understand. Now this is a very strange thing to say in words, but, but those who have been sitting for a while know what I'm talking about, which is there's something that becomes illuminated where we know it's beyond our capacity to talk about, think about, even point to, and yet it's there. Yet we can rest in it, yet we can rest in the mystery. We call it suchness sometimes. And this we begin to rest in. And what is this thing we're resting in? It's not anything outside of the causal stream that makes up the world. Buddhism doesn't have a cause of a cause. The causal network is the causal network. Everything affects everything. 
Everything brings about everything. The whole universe is involved in my speaking right now. And therefore, it is not my speaking. Um, and it's my speaking, too. But, the, um, but everything's involved in this. But we start to have a sense of it. Why does it matter? Because he goes on to say, grass, trees, and lands, which are embraced by this teaching. And this teaching is what he calls self-fulfilling and receiving samadhi, or self-fulfilling and employing samadhi. This sitting zazen where we allow everything to arise and we realize that we don't have to have an ego that gets in the way that manipulates and does things. We don't have to do that. The mind and the heart and the body arise of themselves. If we just get out of the way, we express ourselves in the world as we are. We don't have to do this constant um, anxiety about that. Um, and it's not to say that it's not to say that the outer world, the world around us, I don't even like outer, that our social world and so on doesn't put these kinds of pressures on us to act in a, all kinds of different ways in different circumstances. It certainly does. It's not to take away in any way from those kinds of pressures and violences that happen. But how we relate to ourselves in those that can be different. That can be different. There can be freedom in that. Both can be recognized. It doesn't have to swing one way or the other. It doesn't have to say that there is this world outside that we perceive as outside that are making anxious and sometimes violent requests of us, sometimes nourishing requests, Versus this sense of self that can either um, buy into that and get into this negotiation. Um, or we can begin to look at ourselves spiritually and understand what arising here is, here is not reducible to anything that is told about us or that we tell about ourselves. Cannot be reduced to it. It is a little scratch in the universe of what each one of us actually is. And, um, and it's a different world when we live from that place. It's just a different world. And one of the ways it's different is grass, trees, and lands, which are embraced by this teaching, together radiate a great light and endlessly expound the inconceivable profound dharma. Grass, trees, and lands, which are embraced by this teaching together, radiate a great light and endlessly expound the inconceivable, profound dharma. For Chinese Buddhists, and this is a switch, this is a change from Indian Buddhism. For Chinese Buddhism, sentience in Indian Buddhism was reserved for, I mean, if you leave out hungry ghosts and gods and that kind of stuff, it's reserved for animals, and humans. That, is, that does not, once you get to China, that begins to shift. And what the Chinese call, and this is because, in part because of a Taoist heritage and how they understand experience, but what begins to shift is this challenge of this sentient, in sentient division. And suddenly life itself, grass trees, that is not, not sentient. For Chinese Buddhism, 
it is not not sentient. And the reverse is, the way we understand ourselves as sentient and wholly sentient, that's challenged. Because if my consciousness is only this little bit of part, let's face it, I don't know what's going on with my cells right now. I don't have any idea. How's that different from a plant? I don't know. I have to go to a doctor, they have to do tests, and they have to tell me things, and that's how it enters my consciousness, through this elaborate, baroque process called medicine. So, but I, you know, I can have some sense of my body, but it's very, very small. So most of my body is existing in the world, not unlike a plant. So for the Chinese, this hard division became a, a problem. And so liberation, or the experience of the world, or the dropping away of the ego, was the realization that everything was equally alive. That everything in the phenomenal world was completely sentient. Or not sentient. But the line cannot be hard, cannot be hard and fast. Now why does it matter? It matters because we, and why does it matter today? It matters today because we organize, we usually organize, our moral universe around what we consider sentient and what we don't. We have all kinds of gradations of sentient that make it okay to eat fish and not chicken or whatever. You know, and we have ideas about the world around sentience and insentience. And we have a world, we have deigned our earth as largely insentient. So we can dig her all up everywhere. Doesn't matter. Material reductionism, that is a current religion of science, is very convenient in terms of wrecking the earth. It's a religious commitment, it's not a truth. And in Chinese Buddhism, that is not the religious commitment at all. In our Buddhism, in our Zen Buddhism, it is not the, not the commitment at all. What happens when we actually wake up is, um, or start feeling the world is that grass, trees, and walls bring forth the teaching for all beings, common people as well as sages, and we in accord extend the Dharma for the sake of grass, trees, and walls. This goes to the notion that we are already awake and engaging the mystery of the world. We just don't know it. We're just keeping ourselves in this little tiny consciousness. Meanwhile, our bodies are engaged in this vast mystery of life that we're just ignoring. Thus, the realm of self-awakening and awakening others invariably holds the mark of realization with nothing lacking, and realization itself is manifested without ceasing for a moment. So it's, um, in, there's, there was a, uh, this didn't start with Dogen. Um, this idea of sentience goes way back quite a ways. There's a, in China to about the sixth century, but there was a teacher named Wei Zhang. When he was asked if mind and nature are one, he replied, to the deluded mind, they are different. To the enlightened mind, they are not different. The mind and nature can't be taken apart. They can't be pulled apart. We can't find when we experience, when we go into a forest and we experience the illuminated forest, when we experience it as alive, you cannot walk from a concrete 
parking lot into a forest and tell me you don't feel a shift in sentience. That there isn't something that changes. So, the Buddha, and this is a view, right? This is a view. So we go back to the Buddha. I was telling some people earlier, reading Dogen and the Buddha together is incredible because they're just both so brilliant. Um, but the Buddha says in the Machetta Sutta, he says, in a person of wrong view, wrong resolve, if you're familiar with the Eightfold Path, you'll know this language. If you're not, I think it'll still make sense. In a person of wrong view, wrong resolve comes into being, or wrong intention comes into being when you have a wrong view. In a person of wrong intention, wrong speech. In a person of wrong speech, wrong action. In a person of wrong action, wrong livelihood. So we, set, we, have, wrong, we, have, wrong, we have a wrong view. Our intentions are twisted by that view. We start speech and actions that are further confuse and, and entrench that view. And that creates the foundation for taking up a livelihood and supporting ourselves that is rooted in that view. Now this is where it gets interesting. In a person of wrong livelihood, their efforts now are wrong in life. And with wrong effort comes wrong mindfulness. So, so this, is, this is the turn that I think is so fascinating that the Buddha saw, which is when we're living a life of wrong effort based on wrong view, no awake mind can tolerate that. So we start just dumping mindfulness off. We just don't do it anymore. We stop paying attention. Those of us who struggle with addiction or other habits, right, we know the moment when we make these decisions to go, hey, I'm not paying attention to that. I'm going to stop paying attention to that. So we stop paying attention. And then when we stop paying attention, once you have wrong mindfulness, the ability to concentrate, you have wrong concentration. Concentration goes out the window. Our concentration becomes fragmented. We're distracted everywhere. It's very hard to be in our body. It's very hard to be still. In a person of wrong concentration, we have wrong knowledge. Our understanding is completely confused. And once that's the case, then our sense of liberation and freedom of itself is ruined. We don't really understand what freedom looks like. Our freedom is confused by layers and layers and layers of confusion on top of a view that is wrong. So what happens if you have a dead earth? What happens if you build a civilization on top of a view that the earth is dead? We have this one. This is how a naturally moral being dies. This process of having a wrong view and building and building and building and building until our intentions are so off the tracks that we don't even, we don't know how to get back. So it's not surprising when somebody stands up and says, you know, we're pulling out. We're done. We're not going to pay attention to this anymore. It's heart-wrenching. It's tragic, but it's not surprising. Because one of the things that, that um, 
that has become such a deep bias in our culture is how we understand transcendence itself or spiritual transcendence itself, which is instead of seeing, um, instead of seeing spiritual liberation as seeing our concepts as not life, but just representative of life. Our concepts don't give us life. Our concepts give us some understanding. Life is mystery. But if we confuse these two, and we think that we have it, then when we have some sense of being free, we think we're being free from life. So we kind of put ourselves above. And you see this. Religions do this all the time. I'm going to put myself above life. I'm going to be the alive spirit, and the earth is going to be dead. And I'm above life now. I'm going to get out. Buddhism does this at certain parts of its history, too. But if you understand that the concepts are not the mystery, or as we say in Zen, don't confuse the pointing finger with the moon, if you understand that the concepts are not the mystery, then what is being transcended is the concepts of our life, not grasping them, and we go into the mystery of life. We don't, we're not, the release is into the mystery of life. That's where we end up. And that's a very different world. Because then that is a world of humility and respect and honoring what arises in life. Everything. So I would say that one, there's a lot of things that need to be Well, I want to say one more thing. The thing about this is this creates, you know, I would call this transcendence or ascendance. This is, this is what gets set up as human supremacy. You know, that we live in a world where we're the ones that matter and the rest are... You know, somebody, a human, you know, certain, I mean, the way we treat our human history it's important. We should treat our deaths with respect. But we wipe out thousands of species a year and nothing. A couple of books. You know, so it is clear that we have bought into an idea that we are the ones. But the thing is, is the we are the ones is based on this tiny little narrow consciousness that has no idea what actually makes us up. We don't know what supports us. We have no idea. And we're starting to see that. We're starting to see the implications that we don't know. So how do we start addressing human supremacy? Because this is the way we have organized our society in these binaries, where one side of the binary is valued at the expense of den and denigration of the other side of the binary. And we can bring up all kinds of binaries that support this. And so we have to look at the way our views support any supremacist binaries. Because as long as we keep living as a society that, live, that is in that way, the earth is doomed, we're doomed. And I don't want to say that so that we leave 
here with a sense of, oh no, I want to say that because I want us to live with a sense of urgency. And not just around human supremacy, but every kind of supremacy, every kind. We need to have a sense of urgency of the violence that does to our society and to the world and to our lives. So one thing that we can do, and I'm going to end with this because I want to hear what you have to say, um, is to restore to Mother Earth the sentience that human supremacy has stolen. To consider living a life where the Earth is alive. And not alive in some abstract way where you know intellectually the Earth is alive. But that when you walk into a forest or walk into a park or walk down the street, you know that the grasses, the trees, the lands are endlessly expounding the Dharma. That we are learning from them, that we are them, that we are humbled by them, that we are in service of them. This whole thing that the world, the earth is in service of us, enough. And I, you know, <laughs> I put myself as the first to blame, but, um, but I say it to me too, enough. And part of the reason I want to say it is because this today is because I want to say this to me. I want to say this to me. We have, and not all of us, but many of us have lived for too long disrespecting our home. And disrespecting the being that has birthed us all. So that what I hope, and what I hope for um, spiritual people, religious people, people who take on practices of transformation and awakening, that we shepherd views, that we challenge the views that, um, that put anybody above anybody, or any life above any life that we devote ourselves every day to challenging those views and speaking to some other way of being. I think that's it for now. How much time do we have for questions? Can we have 15 minutes? Okay. Or thoughts? Yes. What is said of animals who kill other animals versus us? I don't know what other animals are thinking. I can't take responsibility for them. They're living out their lives. You know, but um,
But one thing that I think is very clear is that other animals don't factory farm. Other animals don't line up millions of cows to be tortured. They don't. They don't use guns to blow the brains out of pigs. I can go on and on. <laughs> you know, they just don't. So that, while that comparison I understand, if we were still a society that was going out with spears and taking down one animal for a whole community, that was, we were going to use every part of it, okay, I see that comparison. We're a long way away from that. You were going to say something, and then you. Yeah, it was an question. You know, I think this is a very personal question. You know, I think this is a very personal question. I think I don't think there's a I don't think there's a stock answer, which is why I don't. I'm not a big fan of, and although I think there, it's good to know things to do. I actually am, I'm, I don't feel like the, okay, do one, two, three, four, five is the thing. I think actually what we need to work on is our spiritual relationship to life. And what will come from that is what to do. You know, but, uh, but that is, um, so for me, you know, I, I try and I constantly fail at everything I try to do. But, um, but I try to pay attention to the impact of the food that I eat. What's the impact of the food that I eat? You know, and what was necessary to bring that food to me? This is the same thing as everything we do in Buddhism, right? If we're looking at a behavior, we want to look at the causes and conditions of the behavior. So what brought about the harm, and what further harm does it cause? We should just do that with everything. Now that's a high bar. But, but ultimately, that's what we want to do. We want to do that with everything. What's the harm we cause in the world? Buddhist morality is not organized around good and evil. It's organized around harm and harmony. So what cultivates harmony and what cultivates harm? Have you ever been in a forest and known it to be true? That's what it looks like. We know this to be true. We just don't slow down enough to remember. I can't remember where it is, but I wish I knew where this quote was, or I think I got it through hearsay. But somewhere, Suzuki Roshi said, you know, we don't... Um, Rocks, the, we move too quickly to experience the sentience of stones. You know, and I think that's true. I think when we slow down, that's my experience in my own life. When I slow down and when, I'm, when I let myself be a body, suddenly everything around me comes to life. 
when I lock myself in a rational head, nothing's alive. So that's, you know, that's a, um, it's one way. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Again, I think this is something that, that every person has to come to on their own path. But um, one thing that I do is um, in the morning, if I can't do anything else, you know, I try to sit for a little bit or some point during the day, but if I can't do anything else when I wake up in the morning, I try to go to an altar in my house and we have this saying, all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. So I say those words and I take refuge, but then I apologize in the morning to Mother Earth because I know I will fail her. Just from my living out my day. Because I go to coffee shops and get a coffee. You know, but, but it's, you know, that coffee, come on. That's, it's been all over the world. So I'm not exactly living seasonal local vegetables every day in my life. But um, I think there is no way not to fail. I also think there's no way, but, but within our school, we believe that even with the precepts, you know, the vows that we take, we, can't, we can only fail. But that failure is to make the intention stronger, more discerning, not give up. Recognizing that we fail means that we have to have a more discerning attention, that we have to become stronger in our vow. And we just keep going and going and going and going. And, you know, it's funny because in the beginning of this practice, I thought I could be such a moral person. And I wasn't. I just wasn't. And now, I know I can't. And I... I'm nicer to people. <laughs> so, so it's, you know, why that's the case? But it seems to be the case. So, sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. First of all, I'm speaking to people who are interested in a spiritual path. So that makes a difference, not talking to everybody. Um, they 
have to be held together if we're going to be sane. We have to be able to um, seriously fight injustice and violence and oppression, head on, and not lose sight of our birthright as sacred life in this world. Because if we don't have sight of that, then it's very hard to stand up in the other. Because we start believing everything that everyone tells us about ourselves. Because we're not connected to our sacredness. We're not connected to life. So, so for me, I'll speak for me, for me that connection allows me to speak. Because I don't give a damn what you say about me. Up or down. <laughs> Whether you think you know, I'm great because of whatever, or I'm shit because of whatever, whatever it is. This, the earth, is what gives me my story. When the Buddha was told by Mara, you know, who are you to be the one who's going to be awake to the truth of the world? The Buddha didn't call on anybody. He touched the earth, and the earth shook as his witness. That's our practice. That's our practice. We are all under all of the confusion, under all of the histories of violence, under all of the nonsense. We are all indigenous peoples. All of us. We have lost sight of that. We are completely confused. We have denigrated our own histories. We have denigrated many other people's histories and traditions. But bottom line is, we, were, we are of this earth. So, yeah, it's, maybe there won't be buy-in. Okay. There doesn't need to be buy-in by everybody. But for people who are paying attention to their spiritual life, I think, I feel it's, it's important to be um, clear that we are not committing the same high, you know, supremacy to spirituality that we do with everything else. That we're not making the sacred above the earth. That we're not making some human transcendence above the earth. That we understand our transcendence as into life. If we're going to do this path, that's what we need, I feel, that's what we need to understand. Otherwise, we start, re we start encouraging the very same thing that we're seeing destroying life. And we as religions, all of the religions, have to um, take responsibility for the way our own teachings have created this too. You know, everybody's in, some more than others, but everybody's in. That good? Yeah. Liz? <laughs> and I, I think the, you know, one of our binaries is the binary between what we see as the natural world yeah. and what we see as the constructed world. And I guess the question I want to ask you is, is the, is the parking lot less transient, less alive than the forest? No. 
I don't think it is. I don't think it is, but I do think that in some places it's easier to feel sentience. I do think that, like, just like it's in some places it's easier to sit zazen, you know, than it is in other places. In, in the forest, it's easy to feel sentience. You can sit down, and in an hour or two, every, your whole, you're alive in a different way. Um, I don't, you know, I, I, long, a long time ago I talked about treating the city as a coral reef or a forest, you know, because it is alive. These are cliffs. Ask a raptor, they don't make a difference. They don't make any distinction. They just put a nest on the side of the cliff and they go after mice. So, so it's, it's all the same to them. But, um, but we make the distinction, yeah. It would be interesting how we would start reacting to the city if we didn't. How would we take care of it differently? That would be an interesting thing to see if suddenly every New Yorker saw this as a sacred forest. I would love that. There were other. Yes, Victory. Ah. Yeah. Urgency comes from the heart, anxiety comes from the intellect. You know, so, so anxiety, you know, well, actually, let me, let me take that back. The kind of anxiety you're talking about, I think, comes from the intellect. There is an anxiety that just comes from any time we move into a wider, wider sense of ourselves than we've been before. We have this <gasps> kind of feeling because we don't know what to do with the space. So there is that, there is that kind of anxiety. Um, but the anxiety that you're talking about, which is, um, oh my God, this is kind of da 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 We don't need that story. Life is hard enough. We don't need to constantly tell ourselves how hard life is or what might happen that's going to be so bad. Um, so there's that process, which just really gets us nowhere because we usually freeze. We don't actually act, we freeze. The word that we translate as compassion, karuna, which I've said this before, which is this, it actually means to feel the suffering of another or life so thoroughly that you have to act to change it. You just can't not do it. So that's the, um, that's the urgency. The urgency isn't coming from this egoic, oh my God, I'm going to die, blah, 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 or everybody else, or my kids, or it's not that. It's I can, and this is why the sentience is so important, I can't suffer the oppression of a people. I can't suffer the killing off of the earth. I just can't suffer that anymore. I have to do something about that. I don't know what the outcome is. I don't know what's going to happen. I have no idea. I don't even know what's going to happen from the actions I'm going to do in response to that. But I have to do it. And that's, I think, the difference between urgency and, and anxiety. So if you can find that space that comes from 
find that space in the heart that comes from um, no, no more. No more. Then from that. Um, okay. There were, okay, sorry, Terrence, but Gail, you had your hand up. If the Dharma is expounded by grasping all the other Yeah. And if they do that expounding perfectly and endlessly. Yeah. Because we don't know it. Because we don't know that that's true. And because we don't know it, we wreck a lot. You know it. We grasp the, we grasp the representations of those things. When you're saying grass, trees, and lands... You're talking about representations of grass, the concepts of grass trees. Those aren't grass trees and lands. No, but I mean, if we're having a conversation, right, that's what's going on. If we're having a conversation, we're having concepts of grass trees and lands, right? But the grass trees and lands that are in, that are in communication or that are expounding the Dharma are not the one, what we think they are. They're not what we think we are. So what we might say, well, they're... they're, they're they're all expounding the Dharma. Why do anything? Well, we don't know what we're talking about when we say that. We don't know what we mean when we say grass, trees, and lands are expounding the Dharma. We have to be far more humble than that. And that's why we practice, and that's why there's Zen, because we're finding the humility that allows us to hear what we don't understand, that allows us to experience what we don't understand, until it saturates every way we move in the world. So, that to me is the reason. Because I don't know what I'm talking about. Is that good? <laughs> I'm sorry, I know there were other people, but you get this look on your face like, no, let another person talk. It's <laughs> true. Okay. How about we say three more questions and then we stop? So, Terrence, and I know there were other people. So, I was listening to uh, your talk, I think, from last year, and you were, you were talking about a koan that a mentioned this boundless grass. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Inside and outside the temple. And I was just reminded of that because um, you were talking about you know, the boundless grass and this koan represents essentially like our thoughts, our there was one way where uh, we could try to use practice as a way of like getting rid of that stuff somehow. And there's just like a really interesting parallel between the same attitude happening where like nature is treated as this very inconvenient, you know, thing that we've just sort of evolved away from and just like we're being asked to Yeah. No, I think that's really, you know, I think that's important because I think what's happening with, with our current crisis is that we are, um, <laughs> I just had Reb and Judith Butler come up. We have, um, 
we're being called into question and we're being asked to give an account of ourselves as a species, as individuals, as everything. That's the moment we're in. Does anything have any significance if this is what we're going to do? So, yes. Hi. Hi. Yeah, good. A little more general. <laughs> um, I find in the moment when I'm able to just be mm -hmm. that everything, including nature, concrete buildings, people, become present and alive and colorful and real. Mm -hmm. And um, I find that the times when I need that most is perhaps when I have trouble attaining it because of emotional and mental triggers and things, sticking points. Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> no solution. Because the, time, because the time you need it the most is exactly when you're grasping your thinking. And that's why there's no access to it. The time when you need it least is when you're not grasping your thinking, and that's why there's access. So what happens is over time, we just grasp thinking less, and it's more available. But yeah, unfortunately, that is the way it rolls. <laughs> uh, yes, hey, Lisa. Yeah, so the way we normally use wrong and right is around truth. Okay, so something's right because it's true, and something wrong is because it's just not true. Right, that's not the way Buddhism is using wrong, right view and wrong view. What Buddhism is using right view and wrong view is does it lead to harmony and clarity, or does it lead to violence and harm? So we're not asking the question, is it transcendently true? Because as, according to Buddhism, all views don't actually touch what the mystery. They all fall short, even the ones that are right. You know, they're not true in that way, or they're not right in that way. Okay? But where they're right is, in a way, the way we use the word right as like, I'm going to write a crooked tree. I'm going to straighten it out. It's more like that kind of right, which is, okay, everything is a total mess. What is the view that is going to give birth to harmony? What seeds do we plant that results in harmony rather than the seeds that we plant that result in harm? Like, this is exactly the way the Buddha talked about it. There's the Bija Sutta, which is the seed, called the Seed Sutta, where he talks about if you plant a seed that is um, of a bitter tree, it doesn't matter how well you treat it, 
the fruit that's going to come off that tree is going to be bitter. You can do everything right after that, right? After that, and you're going to have bitter fruit. So the view has to be one that gives, in that analogy, sweet fruit. So you look at the whole process. You don't just demand, like, my view's right. No. What's the, what does the view, what fruit does the view bring about? That's a much more thorough and discerning process. And it will change depending on the context. Something can be a right view in one context and not a right view in another. So we always have to be paying attention to context as well. It might bring fruit, a view might bring fruit in one context and not in the other, depending on who's there. So we don't get, we don't get this easy, oh, there's a true view and I'm just going to defend it. No, we don't get that. That is a luxury and not true. <laughs> we can't really find that. I think it's our place to call out harm. I think it's our place to call out harm. If it's not our place, whose place? Whose place is it to call out harm? If everybody, if we don't say, if we don't say, that the harm of the earth right now is a problem, then what? We just give up? We have to call out harm. There's not an easy path. There's not an easy, clean way to call out harm. It's not like just do ABC and you always get calling out harm right. That's for sure not true. But we have to say something. Even though everything we say, this is, <laughs> we have to say something even though everything we say falls short. But that's great because that means we say something from humility, hopefully. Hopefully. Which is, so you're sitting across from somebody, you feel as if they're having a view that is problematic, mm -hmm. and you want to approach them with not coming from a, a, a wrong view of, of what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. So is there, you know, um, I mean, since we don't know right view, could you say that we rely on the teachings or some, under, like, for example, I don't know, has a view that helps hold that in a way in which you don't step into a binary? Yeah. That there is something you can bring to a situation that allows uh, for the possibility of no harm, and what would that be? Yeah, and again, contextually, it might be different, but I think there's something that we can you know, maybe offer as a practice around... Um, supporting the non-harming in a particular interaction? Well, the thing, a couple things. Um, one is, I think binaries are just going to be there because our mind does that. But, but the thing that we have to watch for is um, when we value one side of the binary over the other. Um, but uh, f 
You know, I, this, 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 is, this is a question that we ask all the time, right? How do we actually do this? For me, it's so, uh, I think it is in part relying on the teachings. I think it is in part um, being a sentient body and really feeling into where you are in that place and into, into the context. Because I have to, if I come into any interaction with a script, I don't do well. I don't do really well. If, I sit, if I'm sitting with somebody, even if they have what I consider an egregious perspective, if I'm, if I'm really present, I can find my way to questions that open that up. Not to convince them, because if I come in trying to convince them, then I'm just being, a, I'm trying to dominate them. You know? And that's one thing, it's like looking at our own dominating energy all the time. You know, but, um, but I, but what, on a good day and, uh, you know, then, then I can ask questions that are, that open it up. On a bad day, I don't listen and try to push my perspective. Um, so openness and not knowing. I think openness and not knowing and I think, you know, looking, looking for questions that open the, and that takes a lot of patience and sometimes we don't have patience because their opinion represents a history of violence that we're tired of. <laughs> you know, beyond tired of. You know, it needs to stop. You know, so that's, so that, that's there. You know, that's really there. And, um, but I have never seen meeting domination with domination work. I've just never seen it work. When somebody has a very dominating perspective and I try to dominate their perspective with my perspective, I've just never seen that open anything up. You know, so so I, I am trying, this is not my historic conditioning, but I am trying very hard to learn how to meet opinions that I find violent with questions that open them up to the humanity of the person who's holding the view. Because there's humanity there, somewhere. You know, that's a human being that has the same access to Buddha nature that we have access to. So how do I, instead of seeing them as reducible to their view, see them as somebody who is um, who's Buddha? And how do I open that? Not in a manipulative way, but in a way that opens it in me, and so it opens it in them. If I open it in me, it opens it in them. If I think I'm already open and I'm trying to open it in them, then I'm dominating again. You know? But I want to open it in me so that I can open it in them. Yeah. Okay, I think, hold on, I, I can't go, we'll, we'll go with one more and then we're going to stop. Yes, yeah.
Mm -hmm. But um, I'm not, it's not going to look like dominoes. Um, and so it might need a different, it's just going to look different, so it might need a different, I might need to think differently and prepare myself. You know what I mean? I'm not going to want to dominate. I, I'm going to kick myself later saying that I didn't, I didn't uh, stand up for myself or mm. Right. So, the other side of domination. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also there can be sort of like the passive aggressive way of trying to dominate, mm -hmm. which actually is in play often when someone is feeling like they're being overwhelmed. But um, I guess I'm, in a way I'm calling you in a little bit on that. I think no. Well, I don't think anybody's planning to dominate. Some? Yeah, well, maybe some people, but I don't think they're sitting there going, I'm walking in planning to dominate, you know? Maybe some people are. I don't know, business, I don't know. But, um, yeah, yeah. But, but I, I wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't thinking about people who plan to dominate. Uh, I was just thinking of watching our own potential dominating energy. But you're right. It, it's true. There are people who, maybe that's not what comes up. Maybe other forms of manipulation come up. Or maybe um, giving away our own sacredness is what happens. Yeah, that certainly could happen. I think everybody fought, moves all around those areas. You know, there are some people that we feel comfortable manipulating. There are other people that we're much more comfortable letting manipulate us. But um, but in a certain way, you know, we're by letting others manipulate us, we're manipulating ourselves. Because we're not we're not being and and I, this in no way when I say these kinds of things am I saying it's easy. <laughs> you know, none of this is easy. It's all very hard. But, um, but when we, you know, when we're not, when we're letting go of, and we've been convinced of this, you know, when we're letting go of our sacredness and letting someone do that, it's because we've been convinced that that's appropriate. And that is a massive tragedy. Kind of a, kind of a, um, I'm not using that word in any way lightly. That is an incredibly enormous tragedy that so many people have been convinced that it's appropriate to give away what we call their dharma seat or their sense of sacred right or what the Buddha said, this is my, I, the earth is my witness, it's my birthright. That we've been convinced to give that away. Yeah, you're right. That happens all the time. And I would even say that the people who think they need to dominate believe that. They're terrified. One quick thing. Um, we're doing something challenging here in this center which is that we're trying to take the Buddha Dharma and we're trying to really relate it to um, social issues, violence, histories in the world.
And when we're talking about it here, we are talking about it really specifically for people who are already taking up a spiritual path, who are looking at it from that space. And so the ways we talk about it simply won't be able to touch all of the realities. And, and also, and this goes without saying, but I just want to say it, and, um, and the way that any um, buddy sitting up here, whoever it is, is going to express it, it's always going to be limited, like profoundly limited. And so the conversation and why, why I, I want to, I say that because I want to encourage everybody, not in a, it doesn't need to be in a confrontational way, but to bring up the perspectives that are not being hit upon by the person who's sitting here, whoever that may be. Because we need to have, we are going to prajna, insight, we're going to wake up together. We're going to wake up by pointing out the ways that, no, that's your view, and that's good, and that's great. But it's not, it didn't quite hit this. Didn't quite hit this. So please bring those views up. Please bring that up so that we can understand this as a concerted effort to awaken. A, a, an event as a group to awaken, to awaken together as a sangha. Not as something organized around some person who knows things and other people who don't. That's not our world. That's not where we actually live. We all know something. We all have a view that is a truth. And if we're going to arrive at this, that is our truth, and if we're going to arrive at this, I hope that we can have a very active conversation going forward about all of that. So I just want to invite that, and I'll keep inviting it. So thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.